You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Today, we're going to be talking about deconverting from certainty. We're talking with Audrey Assad. Her new album, Evergreen, just came out this past February and has some pretty significant themes to it. Yeah, I mean, this is her processing of her own struggles with her faith in music. And I'm not going to go into any detail. We're going to let Audrey tell this story because she tells it so well about this process of moving from certainty to just a space of mystery and how she got there and how it actually probably saved her faith. I don't think that's an understatement. So yeah, I mean, Audrey is just a wonderful recording artist and just deep and raw. And I was introduced to her. I mentioned this at the end of the podcast. Uh, my daughter a few years ago sent me a link to uh, one of her songs, I Shall Not Want, which any Audrey Assad fans knows immediately the importance of that song. And it was just so beautiful and so, like I said, raw and authentic. And it was something I needed to hear and the power of music and the power of thoughtful lyrics and from somebody who's obviously felt things as well. And I just felt an immediate connection with Audrey and her music. And so I started downloading everything and listened to stuff a lot from her. And it was it just really, it's fun to have an artist, Jared, on the podcast because, you know, they're more normal than I am, and you are. That may be the first time, I think, that you've put artist and normal in well, the same. Well, yeah, because, you know, people, they feel things, and they sort of express them. And like me, I'm just German. I don't have feelings. <laughs> I have arguments. Damn it. That's right. Yeah. Excellent. All right, well, let's get into our conversation with Audrey. I see myself as someone who's building rooms for people to sit in in different spots on their journey. And every time I go through something, I build a room around it. And then I walk forward and I build another one. And people who come after me can use those spaces. People are going through this stuff, not just me. I think me being willing to speak up about my own journey here has been a real comfort and help to them to not feel alone in their communities. And I keep speaking because I believe it to be valuable. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Audrey Assad, welcome to the Bible for Normal People podcast. Great to have you. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Awesome. So where are you talking to us from? Um, I'm at my home in Nashville, Tennessee in the the office. (laughs) I was just in Nashville. Oh, yeah? I would have dropped in unexpectedly had I known Uh, that you lived in Nashville, but yeah. that's You don't have my address, Peter. (laughs) Oh, I can find it. (laughs) That's actually very Oh, I know people. And this is really creepy. No, I I am really paranoid about people being able to find my address on the internet, but it's everywhere. There's like no way to erase it. Well, mine's, I'm I'm hoping people show up, but nobody does. I'm just lonely. Like nobody cares about me. (laughs) at all so anyway all right get on with the hard i know i I have been listening to your music now for a couple years and i really love it and my daughter turned me on to some of your stuff a couple of years ago that was just so wonderful and you know the more i sort of looked into your own history i just found it to be very interesting your own journey of faith that sounds trite but it's really true and you know maybe just for the benefit of our listeners tell us your story of your faith journeys and maybe some of your struggles and we'll just take it from there because i think that's it's a great story well so i'm from new jersey not too far from where you teach i 
actually have visited or have taught. I don't know if you still teach there at Eastern, but I have visited that campus and thought about going there and then didn't end up there. So we missed each other in that way. But I grew up in the Northeast and my mom is from the South. My dad is from Syria. He is a refugee from Syria that came here in the 70s. So I I grew up in a multicultural home in a very diverse area, which I love. And just, I'm so thankful that everyone hates Jersey because it means that there's more of it for me. (laughs) But I, (laughs) I love it. So that's where I grew up. And I was raised in a Christian home. We were members of a Plymouth Brethren Church, which is something that a lot of people may not be familiar with. But I like to say we're famous because our founder, John Nelson Darby, was sort of the first person to sort of proliferate the idea of a pre-tribulational rapture. And it was very much at the center, in some ways, of how we worshipped and studied the Bible. You know, we did lots of Bible study of Revelation. It was a very Bible studying culture, so I grew up really digging into the Bible, although we had a sort of very specific and limited hermeneutic, I guess I would say. So it was kind of myopic, but at the same time, I kind of have grown thankful over the years that I was sort of taught to value it so much. So that was kind of my context. We had a really kind of interesting culture. It's a very sort of, it's a spectrum of, of culture. So there's like more progressive and maybe more like, your typical traditional Bible church. But the where I grew up was on the on the sort of far right of that spectrum where women couldn't pray out loud in front of males who were over the age of reason. You couldn't speak or read a scripture or ask a question at church. You had to go home and ask your dad, you know, if you had a question. Wow. And so there was a really strong sort of gender roles. There were strongly enforced gender roles. And that manifested in various ways in my own life, obviously. And as a singer and a songwriter, I didn't really start doing that till I was 19 years old because I didn't have any examples of women who did that sort of thing. I compare it to a Quaker background for people who want to kind of get an idea of what it felt and sounded like. You know, our church was wood walls and floors, wooden chairs, no curtains, no no carpets, no images, extremely ascetic and bare. And we were sort of very much people of the word. Like, it was all a head thing. There was no physical sacramentality like maybe the liturgical churches have. And no spiritual gifts like the Pentecostal and the charismatic churches have. We were we didn't believe in that. So it's just very somber and quiet and sort of harsh, even. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. But at the same time, there's something really special about being in a room with a bunch of people singing without any instruments at full voice because we were all sort of taught how to do that. We just around it our whole lives. So we read we all read music and could follow along and sing all the parts and there's something really kind of cool about it, but also I would say very countercultural and different. So that was so that was kind of my context as a kid. When I turned eighteen, we moved to Florida. My dad just kind of decided he wanted to relocate and I was like, free rent, I'm going with him. So <laughs> I I moved to Florida with him and lived there for six years and while I was there I kind of started to do that thing you do at that age where you finally start asking questions about things. So I went to a Plymouth Brethren Church for about a year and a half while I was there, but it was an hour away. And I was there four times a week and I put a lot of miles on my car and I finally decided, you know what, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I'm going to try out some other places, which was, you know, just crazy notion. But because we were very much, you know, you married Plymouth Brethren, you didn't work with people outside Plymouth Brethren. That was kind of how I grew up. But I started going to a little Baptist church when I was 19, and that was where I learned to lead worship. That's what I, that's where I first kind of started listening to worship music, because I didn't listen to that growing up. And then from there, it's like a lot of, I feel like I have to say yada, yada, yada a lot, because there's a lot of moving around. But I, I, I went to a Presbyterian church from there for about a year and a half. And while I was at that Presbyterian church, I met a Catholic who was like very different than the New Jersey Catholics I had happened to know. He was very devout and intelligent and I don't, not that they were intelligent, but he was articulate about what he believed Mm -hmm. and why. And we had lots of crazy conversations about it. And I started to get really interested because I think I was finally getting to a place when I was about 20, 21 years old, where I was asking myself, why am I at church? What am I here for? And I know it sounds like a silly question, but it actually didn't feel silly to me at all. I, I sort of started to think, oh, I could like 
download a sermon on a podcast and I could go hang out with people and have quote unquote fellowship on a Friday night, a Bible study and like all of this stuff. What am I here for? I don't understand what this is. And I started to be really intrigued by the idea of sacraments. And that was kind of the beginning of my journey into Catholicism in terms of any like direct way. And so I ended up studying and kind of being catechized by some people I had in my life by this guy that I met and his family. And I became a Catholic when I was 24, which was, you know, for a Plymouth Brethren kid, it's, it's truly anathema. And mm. I got a lot of pushback from people, of course. But I felt really sure that it was imperfect, but the oldest church or arguably one of the oldest, you know, Orthodox, Catholic, kind of that stream of Christianity, I felt like I I wanted to be connected to that. And so I I took the plunge and I've been Catholic for 10 years now. And now in the midst of being a Catholic, I've gone through a pretty serious deconstruction. And I would say reconstruction at the same time. It was kind of both. It has been both at the same time. And I'm still kind of in that. Meanwhile, sort of still planted in Catholicism, but have really sort of had my old fundamentalist residue, like really shaken off and challenged. Audrey, do you feel, can I just uh, yeah. ask a question about that? Do you, do you feel that your Roman Catholic context gives you freedom to sort of live in that space where you're still sort of working things out? Or do you, I mean, I imagine with the Plymouth Brethren, it would have been, you, we, there's not even a language for that. No, there would have been no manual for it. You know, I had questions when I was young and I would ask them in Sunday school and really really truly receive the answer uh just don't ask those questions it's a bad mm-hmm. idea bad question the things that you know we all ask like why did god order genocide in the old testament you know they're like just don't ask that that was the reaction so that there would have been no help given or guidance or understanding lent you know catholicism okay i'll say this on paper yes because Catholicism is an incredibly broad and wide berth of different opinions and different approaches to doctrine and devotion and discipline and all of those things. But in America, a lot of Catholics are just like a lot of Protestants, which is to say that they are sort of like American Christians and America comes first. (laughs) Mm. And I find that it's discouragingly prevalent in Catholicism to be that way in this country and i think it's just part of our country's unique sickness i'm already going there sorry guys no that's <laughs> um, okay go wherever you want Audrey. But, but i have also known and, and clung to the fact that there are people within the catholic church's history especially even in this country like thomas merton who or dorothy day who really um would be called a flaming liberal by everybody <laughs> some of the parishes have been to in the south right. And, you know, said to myself, well, you can say I don't belong here, but I get to say you're wrong. I do. I have a place here just like some of these other people have a place. So on paper, in theory, and in my own head, yeah, I do have more freedom. But I I do meet with a lot of resistance to what I've been doing and how I've been doing it in terms of deconstructing and reconstructing. And I'm just trying to let let it roll off my back as much as I can, because I truly do believe that this is the mystical way that many of my heroes have traveled before and I might not be good at it, but I have to do it. So. Yeah. Audrey, maybe give us a brief uh, biblical history. So you kind of track the, the spiritual, even denominational mm-hmm. path that you've walked. How is your views of the Bible kind of tracked with that from the Plymouth brethren to the Catholic? Yeah. As a Plymouth brethren kid, you know, we were taught that the Bible is self-interpreting. And so all you need to do to interpret the Bible is understand the Bible's code that, you know, these certain people that we happen to be sort of denominationally descended from, these people happens to have the keys to that. So we were in luck, you know. And so we were scholars from a young age of how to study the Bible. And it was all very specific to John Nelson Darby, Schofield, these kind of thinkers that really contributed to the evangelical ideas of pre-tribulational rapture and premillennialism and stuff like that. So that was our lens, and we read the entire scripture through that lens. And so we weren't taught to consider historical critical approaches or the sort of various ways that there are of studying the Bible. We weren't taught to consider those because they were not valid. And so my my understanding of the Bible really came down to the reality that 
everything was to be read through this dispensation. Audrey, can I ask a quick yeah. question for clarification? Sure, I'm wondering yeah. if there might be some listeners who aren't familiar with yeah, pre-tribulation. Totally. Yes. I, it's been a long time since I've said that. You see, it's really <laughs> foremost on my mind. It doesn't roll off the tongue anymore. That's what we just say, pre-trib rapture. What, what in heaven's name are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, so there's lots of schools of thought on what's going to happen at the end of time. You know, and, and a lot of Christians, a lot of believers and Jewish people before them have been wondering and, you know, writing about and studying what might happen at the end of time. The pre-tribulational rapture theory is this idea that comes from a very literal reading of the book of Revelation, that Jesus will come back, that all the Christians will be raised from the dead, and all the Christians who are alive on the earth will be caught up in the air, that's the rapture, and that they will meet him in the air and be in heaven and that then there will be a literal seven-year tribulation on the earth in which the Antichrist will sort of take over and deceive people. And then Jesus will come back at the final end to vanquish the Antichrist in a giant battle at Armageddon, and then time will be over. And in our school of thought, no one got a chance on earth. So even... <laughs> Like after the rapture happened, you didn't get a chance. So even the left behind books were too liberal for us because there were people, there are people getting second chances down here. Like, what do they think this is? The lottery? This is not how this works. So like we were just very hard line about that being exactly how things are going to go. And that's really the pre-tribulational rapture. It's as simple as I can to say it is a very literal reading of a few verses in a book of the Bible, the last book of the Bible. And so, yeah, so that's kind of, what what we read the bible for and everything served or was served by that so when i've i've kind of journeyed to you know being a catholic was very challenging to my old ideas even though i had kind of left them behind but it's just like it's so deeply ingrained in you and then i started to be like why the catholic church man they only preach for like 10 minutes like what what is the deal you know this the the podium or the uh the ambo as it's called in the catholic church where you read the Bible from and where you preach from is over to the side and not in the center. And that's very intentional because the center for Catholics is supposed to be the sacrament of the Eucharist, which is, again, I mean, it just was a heretical idea to would have been to me growing up. We thought it was idolatrous. And I was taught that Catholics were part of the Revelation story. Like you read about the whore of Babylon and that was the Catholic Church, and the Antichrist would probably be a pope. And so just very, very anti please, please tell us that you had chick tracks. Oh, yes, I did. Did I they did give that. you nightmares, too? They did. I hated those things. Audrey, you're thought. from New Jersey. You had chick tracks. <laughs> yeah. Why are we not best friends? I don't know. Are you I have from no Jersey idea too? what's going on. Anyway, I, 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 I didn't mean to interrupt, but <laughs> I just had to ask. I just had this vision of chick tracks, which yeah. another thing I haven't thought about in about 30 years. Oh, so. I think about them way too much. Oh, I, I, I think I still go and visit his website sometimes. You need Your next oh, album needs to be. The mm -hmm. chick track stuff. Yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> Audrey's Sovereign, dad, one, one cool chick. Um, <laughs> I yeah. So that's the pre-tribulational rapture. So so my journey away from that has been just really coming to realize that the Bible is not as simplistic as I had been taught that it was, and it was. It's not as easy to interpret as I've been taught that it is. But at the same time, the Bible also, you know, it's like a there's much more room given to people from different backgrounds and cultures to come to it to not only to know what was meant for the cultures of the time, but to look at the Bible through their own lens of their culture and their time and sort of create this living cloud of biblical wisdom, you know? And I, so I just kind of view the Bible as something that, that came out of the church that is interpreted by the church over time. And I don't really think I'm less reverent of the Bible now. I feel like I'm much more reverent of it by not reducing it to a code or a system, you know. But well, and that's your word mystery before, I think. You know, I don't know, yeah. maybe that, uh, I mean, in my mind, those things tied together a little bit. It's the flexibility and the freedom of not having mm -hmm. to be certain. And so you get yeah. to explore yeah. these things a little bit. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I just I want to be clear what you just said. You said something that sounded really interesting about how the Bible sort of comes out of the church, but people have just been interpreting it differently over time. Yeah, well, you know, I guess I'll put it this way. So the Bible came out of the church, meaning the church assembled a series of books in the, I guess, the 400s. 
And those, these letters had been circulating for quite a long time, but there was sort of a council held to sort of uh, set it in stone what the canon was, you know. And so the church really took it upon itself to say, like, the Holy Spirit is guiding us. We believe this to be the canon of the scriptures, and this is it, and we're putting our stamp on it. And I didn't know that's how the Bible happened. I don't know what I thought as a kid. I thought that the Bible fell out of the sky like it is, you know. <laughs> and I, I don't know what I thought, but that's what I, something like that. And so when I found out that that's how the Bible was assembled, I thought, oh, like, well, then who's responsible for how we think about it? And now, like, a really staunch Catholic would say only the Catholic interpretation of the Bible is correct. And I never quite got there. I think I see a lot of value in the different approaches that I've come across. You know, everything from the Catholic mystical reading of scripture to obviously the more like historical readings. And, and I've really appreciated the USCCB, which is the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, mm-hmm. has on their website a Bible online with footnotes and with introductions to each book, explaining kind of what type of literature each book is and who may have written it, the different ways you could read it, you know. And so, like, when I opened up, you know, the book of Jonah as a a new Catholic on this website, and it said, this may not have really happened. I was like, excuse me? You know, (laughs) so surprising. They Um, were right. They're just a bunch of liberals. What am I doing? No. And so I've just grown to appreciate the Bible as the collection that it is of different types of writing, wisdom tradition that yes contains some historical events for sure but that isn't like a textbook or code of law you know as much as it is a living story and that's kind of how i see it now we're sorry to interrupt the podcast but we want to take just one minute to mention two simple ways to support the work we do with the bible for normal people One, just go to iTunes, rate us, and give us a review, but only if you like us. If you don't, first I would say reconsider your life choices, but two, then just ignore this message completely. Two, if you haven't already, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. There you'll be able to find ways to join the community, contribute to the discussion, and offer your support at various levels. And last but not least, we want to give our deepest thanks to some of the members of our producers group. These folks not only email us feedback, they hop on quarterly calls to give us feedback and have supported us financially. So thanks to Brox Beasley, Nathan Kitchen, Denise Howard, Bob Faby, Josh Levinson, Chrissy Florence, Caleb Needens, Michelle Snyder, Shea Box, and Greg Ballou. We couldn't do what we do without your help. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy. And I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on the Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary, 
and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Now back to the podcast. Uh, you know, one thing that's coming across loud and clear, Audrey, and this isn't very common, actually, you're a convert to Catholicism from fundamentalism. Uh-huh. And what often happens, at least in my experience, and Jared will agree with this because he has to, he always agrees with everything I say, but the tendency is if when you move from fundamentalism to another, let's say, system, mm-hmm. it's to sort of bring the fundamentalism with you. And yeah. then you say this new thing that you've converted to, now I have the final answer for everything. Yes. Well, I did do that. <laughs> I did do that. Uh, for, for how long? About 10 um, minutes? No, it was, a, it was, I was 10 years ago, I became a Catholic. I want to say it was three years of that probably three four years and that's not very long though you know right well i think everything was accelerated by the fact that i just had it was kind of out of nowhere i just had what i would have called a crisis of faith at that time now i would call it a healthy sort of disillusionment and a plunge into the darkness and i i could sort of sense it coming and i didn't know where it was coming from but when 2008 I wrote a song that's actually on my new album that's coming out in February uh, this month, I guess, called Evergreen. And the song is called Teresa, and I wrote it in 2008. It's a song that kind of takes inspiration from the way that Mother Teresa felt for many, many years, which her sort of posthumous journals like that were released sort of illuminated that she had gone 20 years without feeling like she heard the voice of God. Right. And I sensed that coming towards me. And in some ways, I had never really heard the voice I was looking for. And I was kind of involved in this fundamentalism thing. I mean, by no choice of my own as a kid. But then later on, I sort of clung to it as like, I didn't hear that voice I wanted to hear. And so this was how I would know, you know, that I was on the path was by adhering and Mm -hmm. committing myself to these really rigid principles and ideas. And that was how I would know that I was in favor. You know, my ideas about God were very bad. And so I kind of thought of him as being in opposition to me almost. And that Jesus kind of was intervening between us. But that if Jesus hadn't like stepped in front of me, God wouldn't want to look at me. And it was just this whole kind of very... Very sad story I was telling myself. And so... <laughs> Not a, a very encouraging story. No, no. It was really sad. And, and mixed into all that, I know I'm saying a lot of things, but mixed into all that is the fact that I was suffering from something I didn't even know existed, which is religious OCD, which is called scrupulosity. So not only was I a fundamentalist, but I was also obsessive compulsive about cleansing my conscience, saying the salvation prayer a hundred times a day, things that I thought you were supposed to be doing. And now I know I was a little sick. I didn't know that, but I, so there's just a lot there. And so I don't know, at some point in the last seven years, I just went from being sure of things to being sure of nothing, like absolutely nothing, definitely to the point of questioning meaning itself. And that was scary because I make my living doing what I do, which is making devotional music and kind of having this spiritual platform. And I just was like petrified by what would happen if I just decided, oh, I don't believe anything that I believed before. And having to go through that in sort of the public eye was tough and hide a lot of it. Very anxiety-ridden situation. And I had a really great therapist who I've been working with this whole time as I've gone through it. You know, Audrey, we had Jen Hatmaker on not too long ago. And one of the things we talked about with her, you just mentioning that made me want to ask the question as well. How is that for you, you know, being in the public space and having this following that maybe thought of you in one way and foisted mm-hmm. some of their belief system on you in that sense of, of believing through you and the pressure you felt? How was that as you changed? What was the reception of the community toward your kind of as you came out in these doubts and, and this process? Was that a painful process? Did people come around you? What was that like for you? Well, a lot of people just fell off the map entirely. I had a spiritual director for a season who just stopped returning my phone calls, and that was very hard. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you are, you're a handful, Audrey. <laughs> I know. I know. Okay. I know. And, uh, it, yeah, apparently he couldn't hack it. So 
you know, stuff like that would happen and be very difficult for me. But then at the same time, there's this whole public stuff. Like I felt like I was living a sort of double life, even though I was, I was trying to be as honest as I could be in a prudent way without being like, here's every little thought in my head at all times, you know, because if I had done that, I would have ended my career a long time ago, probably because I was so lost. But so there was kind of a dynamic starting to happen as I, as I really pressed into like the justice side of Christianity meaning justice for the poor, as I started to follow Jesus for the first time, which is what it felt like to me, I started to see justice as a huge missing piece in my faith as a young person, and really to lean into that, and to lean into, you know, how how these all, like these marginalized and underserved and oppressed groups intersect with each other, and, and to start to talk, like sort of talk that way publicly, I started to receive, yes, quite a lot of pushback, but it was the only way I knew to engage with Christianity for a season because I could not engage with it intellectually for honestly, it was a while before I could read about it or think about it or like, you know, in sort of the same ways that I had growing up. So there was pushback and, but I haven't, I have to say like from a public standpoint, I've received a lot of support too. And people are going through this stuff, not just me. I think me being willing to speak up about my own journey here has been, I hope, you know, from what people are telling me, a, a real comfort and help to them to not feel alone when they feel alone in their communities in a lot of ways. So I've just been encouraged by that. And I keep speaking because I believe it to be valuable in that way. Yeah. And it's interesting too, Audrey, just, you know, you saying that puts the pattern together a little bit where we've heard on a number of occasions, I think it's true for my story as well, where we sort of say, well, when we can't engage Christianity at an intellectual level, we don't believe these things anymore. Mm-hmm. find these, uh, you know, social justice and practices, liturgies, more concrete behavioral things. It's interesting that we're so ingrained in the intellectualizing of Christianity that that feels like a deconversion. I know. Where for other faiths, that would have been like, well, yeah, kind of no duh. There's this mm-hmm. other part of the faith, but it, you know, it's just a testament to how we were raised, perhaps, mm-hmm. that it was so tied to mental assent to positions about who God is. Oh man. I remember when that started falling apart for me because I started to think, wait a second. Like once I figured out I had OCD, for example, and I was like, wait a minute, all of my mental assent, all of those years was coming out of sickness. So what did it even mean? You know? Mm. And what about people who hear the same thing I do, but they're coming to it with a different brokenness than I have. And it means something different to them. And they can't really help that, you know? Like, the intellect to me, I always thought it was this pristine, pure thing that you could exercise with, like, total clarity and, you know... Objectivity. Yes, and objectivity was something that you just have. You know, you just have it. It's, like, not something you grow towards or whatever. And then when it hit me that that's not really how life works, I thought, like, oh, my God, I, I... I believed, but what did that even go count for? It's still like an act of the will. It's still something that I'm coming to with my own sort of lens and context. So like, just like any other thing I used to decry as being like workspace salvation, I was like, no, 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 this is also, this is the same exact SHI, you know, <laughs> it's the same exact thing. SHI, um, what's that? SHI, you can fill in the blank. Oh, yeah, another, there's another letter. I, Which is it? I cuss now. Yeah, there's a lot of ship. P. Um, yeah, <laughs> bull shirt, as they say on the good place. Yeah, the good place. My, my favorite stuff. Oh my gosh, speaking of that, I know this is a total derailment, but I was on Twitter today <laughs> and this guy had been tweeting about how there's a debate going on in Catholic circles as to whether it's a good or a bad idea to watch the good place. And I thought, wait, this is a debate. I can't, I can't, this is too much for me. That's a great show. Everybody shut up. But (laughs) anyways, so yeah, it's, uh, yeah, Uh, I do definitely derailed myself. Oh, the intellect. So yeah, it's an act of the will to believe. And it's a choice that you make that may or may not be objective. And it probably isn't. And however you're believing, it's not perfect. And so that was a freeing but also a frightening idea to me because I just didn't know what to do in place of it, you know, yeah. especially when I didn't believe anymore. I was like, what do I do now? You know? Yeah. So. And that's, you know, the deconversion, being able to reframe that, at least for me, of saying, 
I'm not deconverting from Christianity. I'm deconverting from this mm-hmm. intellectualism or I'm deconverting from a need for certainty. Yeah. Uh, kind of making idols of these other things, going on a new journey of, of yeah. what else is out there. It's really jarring to discover you've been a Gnostic your whole life and you didn't know, you know. <laughs> right. Um, man, I was not prepared emotionally for that. It was right. very very weird. The, the irony, Audrey, is that, I mean, you've expressed something that, again, I think many people, including Jared and I, have experienced too, this this irony that our whole, our lives, our, our Christian training when we're young has been all about this ascent, right? Mm-hmm. This, this intellectual ascent, but in a context that's actually somewhat anti-intellectual. Right. You can't talk that's about so it. You, you can't debate oh. it. So it's uh, the word for that. I mean, I don't want to be too harsh here, but that's that's uh, there's a manipulative dimension. to Absolutely. That. Oh, my gosh. Say brainwashing, although that's a bit harsh. But well, I not my therapist would disagree with you. <laughs> She's a okay. Christian, but she she was just, you know, we were going through how it worked at my church. And she said, you know what this is? This is a cult. This is a cult you're describing to me where yeah. where, where you live in your head but you're not allowed to question and you're able to be manipulated because of that, because all of the fear held over your head, if you won't belong or be part of this, right. if you, if you divert, you know, if you di- uh, diverge one inch from this thing, we're telling you, this is the code, this is the path, this is how you do this. And if you, if you go to the right or the left, you're out. And so you're all belonging, you know, Brene Brown talks a lot about belonging and I'm, right. I'm just reading through bravely in the wilderness right now. And when I think about, how much it means to a young person to belong and then to be sort of taught from the beginning that what it requires from you is absolute adherence Mm -hmm. to this way of thinking. Yeah, that's cult-like. That's definitely manipulation. Yeah, that's true. And that's not the gospel way. I think we would all agree on that. And, you know, it's just so interesting to hear this story because it's such a common one. And, you know, when, when you felt that, like, I, I don't know, what to, I'm just so scary. I don't know what to believe anymore. It's almost like, I guess that had to happen because you had to, you, you tabled the intellectual side of things and moved towards practice, like Jared mm-hmm. was saying before. And I think so many have found that to be, and that, of course, you were always told that's wrong. Mm-hmm. works right but mm-hmm. then you start reading the bible and it's faith right. working itself out in love and and faith doesn't always mean in fact it rarely if ever means intellectual ascent it means trusting and actually acting well towards the other it's being faithful mm-hmm. to other people and then you start saying oh goodness there's a whole body dimension here that you know the mind doesn't you know our minds are wonderful things for the most part but that is not the center of the seat of the christian faith it's all of us it's Mm-hmm. What we do, and it's, it's like, like for you, it's creativity. You know, that's that's a big part of the expression of the faith for you, and for me and Jared, it might be some other things, but <laughs> you know, it's it's just leaving that mono-dimensional view of the faith, which is rooted in simplistic arguments that only work if you don't open your eyes and look around. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than ten thousand different kinds of plants? and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S. They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. 
Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. And with that, maybe a question for you, Audrey, just as an artist. How did this play out on, in that side of your life? As your faith has, has transformed into new avenues and new pathways, how has that affected at all how you see yourself as an artist and, and the creative work that you do? Well, I consider what I do to be a very, it's a very mystical thing with very pragmatic realities. So, I mean, the music and the inspiration comes in the midst of all of the little mundane stuff I do to be ready for it when it happens. And that's anything from practicing to just writing down notes and ideas as they come to my head or, you know, reading or, or all the things that I do to like keep myself prepared. And then inspiration will strike sometimes and it'll be, you know, sometimes it's, it's truly like a song that really happens in five minutes. And I'm like, how did, where did that come from? And sometimes it's work and it takes weeks and months and years to finish it. But all that to say, I've found such a refuge in music because it really, even when you come at it with your, okay, wait, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to backtrack. The Calvinists have found a way <laughs> to, to take songs and just make them incredibly, what's the word I'm looking for? That word again you used before? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the three-letter word you used before? Is that what you were? <laughs> yeah, there's some bullshit going on there for sure. I don't mean to be mean. I just, you know, when I, sometimes I hear these new hymns that are coming out and I think, oh, man we're really addicted to this way of codifying God. And I've been guilty of that, I'm sure. But as I've grown, as I've changed and evolved, I'm seeing this music that I make as an opportunity to create and facilitate space for people to contemplate God and contemplate their own pain and to experience those things in a space of freedom. And then to do that what they will, you know, do with it what they will and I see myself as someone who's building rooms for people to sit in, in different spots on their journey. And every time I go through something, I build a room around it. And then I walk forward and I build another one. And people who come after me can use those spaces for their own needs. And so that's kind of how I see what I do. That's a great way of putting it, man, oh man. Building rooms and giving people space to not be certain Mm -hmm. And you figure things out, almost giving people permission by modeling it for them, I guess, is what you're doing. Maybe that's one I way. I hope so. I hope so. Well, you are because a lot of people say so, you know, and it's, you know, not everybody agrees with anybody in everybody. Mm -hmm. you, know, you probably have people who think you're crazy, but that's okay. Right. Yeah, if, it is. If there aren't people saying that we're probably doing something wrong anyway. Yeah. You, get hate mail. Don't you don't get hate. I bet you, you don't. I, get um, I have, I have. Yes. No. I have. I've gotten hate mail and death threats, as a matter of fact. Have you gotten death threats? I have. For only really? once, but it was real. And I and it was coming from somewhere near where I was touring. And I had to have policemen at every show for like a week. Oh, my so, goodness. Yeah. I'm glad I didn't show up at your house. <laughs> I know. Now, yeah. I, oh, that's, I uh, that's, that's terrible, though. I mean... Was it just a crazy person or? I don't know. They were, they were definitely, uh, there was something off. But well, I, obviously there's something yeah. off if they're doing <laughs> that. But was it something like you wrote in a, was it something you wrote it? Like you've written stuff in Christianity Today, I think, right? Yeah. In a few other places. Was it something like that or was it a song? No, was, they, you know, they said something to the effect of like, 
you're a nosy bench. <laughs> okay. And get out of my business and stop telling my story publicly. And who knows? It might've been a song I wrote or something. Oh, yeah. Something threatened him probably. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And oh gosh. And on that note, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gotten to death threat yet. I feel a little bit left out now, but um, uh, we well, you know Audrey, I'm, it's, it's really nice talking with you and, you know, for, for both of us and, there, there are so many times when I wanted to stop you and say, hey, we do that too mm-hmm. for my own little world here. And I think there really is this tremendous overlap, I think, in your experience and in ours and in building a community and trying to give people space. Mm-hmm. And I think there are so many people out there doing that now. Thank you, Internet, mm-hmm. that allows that. And, and there are so many pilgrims out there, I think, who have been taught a certain way and they real I mean, I have kids, you know, and, and who realize that that doesn't make sense anymore of their lives. Yeah. And the question is, well, now what, I guess Christianity is nonsense. No, it's, it's deep. It's broad. It goes back to ancient times. And there were some smart people living back then who weren't simplistic thinkers and, and working mm-hmm. through a lot of problems. So I, I think sometimes I just think that we have to keep just telling this broad Christian story like Jared said before, you're not deconverting from Christianity. You're deconverting from a, a sociological construct that is tribalistic. Mm-hmm. That's not what this is about. So, right, agreed. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, one last thing. Just I'm going to say this because I can because it's my podcast. My daughter sent me a link to um, "I Shall Not Want" a few years ago, which people you need to listen to this song. It just it hit me at a moment when I absolutely needed. It was just a down moment, and I really, really needed to hear it. And I said, I just knew, like, I don't know who this person is with this weird name, but she's Catholic, but she doesn't have a Catholic last name, but I want to find out who she is. And it was just a wonderful song that was authentic and real. And I said, okay, here's somebody who I think gets what I'm thinking about, too. So it was it was a nice little connection from a distance and uh, i'm just glad my daughter had the presence of mind mm. to send me that so that's awesome i want to thank you for that and for the other stuff that you do as well yeah, yeah. you're welcome and uh, speaking of that audrey as we come to the end of our time what else are you you mentioned uh, evergreen as an album but say a little bit more about that and uh, the upcoming tour projects what where can we point people to so evergreen will be uh, everywhere february 23rd and we are super excited around here about it because it's my first record of full like original material since uh, fortunate fall came out in 2013 mm-hmm. and that, that was mostly because i i just really couldn't write anything for quite a while as i was going through all this mm-hmm. but yeah you can find out more about it at audreyasad.com i'm really active on social media too twitter and facebook and yeah i'm really pumped and i hope it'll be another room for people to sit in Excellent. And will be, there will be a, a tour upcoming with that? In, in the fall. I have okay. just had a baby, so I'm taking some time off from the touring. But yeah, so we'll be there. I'll be in a few cities this fall. No, okay. sure. East Coast at all? I'm sure. I hope so. Okay. That'd be great. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Audrey, for being on and for sharing your story just so openly and, and authentically. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Audrey. See ya. Thanks for listening, everyone. And remember to check out Audrey's new album, Evergreen. And you can find out about Audrey on her website, audreyassad.com, which is very informative, a lot of great stuff. Jared, she sells merchandise. Why can't we sell merchandise? We could. We could, but nobody would buy it because we have no talent. (laughs) We'll have a thousand (laughs) mugs in our basement. Oh, here's a little trivia too, Jared. Another thing to motivate you. When Audrey went out on her own and recorded her album, Fortunate Fall, which is a very interesting title, she went on her own and she had a Kickstarter campaign. And in 50 hours, she raised $40,000. Yeah. Because there are people who really, really believe in her. And I I, I want you to believe in her too because she does great stuff. So you have the website and she's going to be touring in the fall of 2018 she had a baby in october i think her second one so she's chilling out for a while i'd yeah, love those to are... see you fanboying here over audrey's song she's awesome I, like I know she's awesome so anybody who helps me is cool excellent and also in addition to
to purchasing Audrey's album, head to thebiblefornormalpeople.com or pedens.com and just check out some of the articles there. We're always interested and engaged in this conversation about faith and questions and doubt and primarily how does the Bible fit into that? How do we read it? What do we do with that? If you wanted to go even further than that, please check us out on Patreon, patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. Lots more opportunities there to engage on Slack. We hope to see you there. See you next week, folks. Sure.